follow your dreams, follow your passion. Well, well-intentioned, this advice can sometimes be extremely toxic, especially when you can't assume people even know what their true dreams or passion are. Think about that for a second. Oftentimes, our dreams are manifestations of a direction, but not the actual destination that we want. So if someone follows a dream without exploring, you may be setting them up for hundreds of thousands of dollars of schooling that they don't need, and years of pursuing something that ends up not being that important to them when they finally ask, wait, why is this my dream? Our guest this week is a perfect example of this exploration. Meet Chris Savage. He started his journey on the path to becoming a filmmaker only to discover that that's not the future he wanted, which led him to becoming the founder and CEO of Wistia, the number one platform for business video. We're going to explore when to give up on your dreams as well as the shift from marketing to brand affinity, as well as much, much more, all coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Chris Savage illustrates brand affinity. We talk about how shame led to work ethic, when to give up on your dreams, the shift from marketing to brand affinity, the unlock to content distribution, and Wistia's internal content mandate. What's the harshest or hardest feedback you've received so far? It doesn't have to be at Wistia, it can be in anything. Oh man, I've, I've received a lot of harsh feedback. The harshest... I mean, if I were to go to something that probably ended up having the biggest impact on my life, it would be in college, I had to take what was called BA 10, Visual Arts 10, which was the introductory arts class. And I decided midway through college that I was going to focus my major on what's called it. I went to Brown University and they, my major is called art semiotics, <laughs> which is like... The study sounds, of sounds like a brown sounds like a brown degree. Right it's, now. it's a very brown degree. I don't really want to get into it, but but it effectively it let me do film, which is what I want to do. I want to do film and video, and there's a lot of theory involved, yada yada, arts and analytics. And to to do that, one of the the required courses is VA10, basic visual arts, and it's going to be drawing with charcoal and colored pencils and, you know, all this stuff. And it was like, you know, one of the first classes I went to was drawing nudes. I mean, it was ridiculous. I had no idea what I was doing. I got my first assignment, which was to draw the negative space around an object. And negative space, who wants to draw negative space? Well, I guess, I guess I could draw negative space. And I, you know, put a bunch of different co-hangers together onto like a, a light. And I drew the negative space. And I thought it was pretty good. You know, it took like 30 minutes. And this class was once a week, two and a half hour seminar. And I did this the night before it was due. And so I go into class, have my big sheet of paper that I drew this on. And the professor says, put your work up on the wall. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. You know, this is not going to be good for me, but okay. And so we, you know, go and take the thumbtacks and poke, poke through the paper and put the paper up on the, on the wall. And then the professor's like, all right, where should we start? Uh, let's start with someone who doesn't really look like they put a lot of work in or, so, you know, something to that effect. And everyone's just like, well, this guy, this, this one here. And they point to mine. 
Now the whole class is looking at mine. And they're like, so um, why do you think they put no work into this? You know, why, why was this person so lazy? Like, you know, why is this so bad? And we start critiquing my, I'm going to air quote, my art, right? And I'm like, this is horrible. This is absolutely mortifying. This is just devastating. And then we go on and eventually, you know, I should also mention there's probably 20, 20 folks in this class. There are incredible works of art up there, right? Like that I'm looking at and I'm looking at what mine just looks like a scribble. <laughs> and then these just mo most amazing things. And I'm just thinking, myself, how did these people do this? Like what happened? Well, I was so mortified and so embarrassed by this like public shaming basically that when they gave us the assignment, which was due in a week, you know, draw something else with charcoal. I can't remember exactly what it was. I was like, I am not, I am never going to let that happen again. I am just, I am not going to let them start that class with me being at the bottom. Like, hell no, that's not happening. So instead of waiting until the night before, which historically that's always what I was, had done my entire life, I had been a huge procrastinator. I'd wait till absolute last second. I was like, I am starting now. Like it really was devastating. Like, I think I was beat red for like a, a 24 hours straight. I was so embarrassed. And I worked so hard in this, I think yeah, it was charcoal. I worked so hard in this like charcoal based representation of something. And I, I probably spent like five hours in this thing, like more time than I'd ever spent drawing or doing any art of any kind. And I looked at it, I was like, this, this looks pretty good. This looks uh, much better. And, you know, go in, I'm ready. They're like, all right, we'll put up on the wall, put up on the wall. And they're like, let's, he didn't say let's start with the, or she didn't say let's start with the laziest one, but it was something to the effect of like, let's, you know, let's work through, let's work through. And we got to mine again, it probably was like fourth or fifth, but they didn't say it was the worst. They didn't say it was the laziest. It was more like a critique of like, well, this person put some time in, but they missed this and that they missed this type of shadow and they didn't miss this thing over here. And I was like, okay, what? I missed all this stuff. Like I spent five hours on this. But over time, through the course of that semester, I went from honestly doing scribbles in like 30 minutes to spending, I mean, probably my last assignment, I spent like 20 hours in one week on it. And it was, I was really proud of it. And it had, I couldn't even believe that I could draw at the end of this thing. I was so shocked when I saw the stuff that I had made. And it was, I guess like for me, it opened up this whole idea of, I had always thought that people just kind of had innate skills at things and they could either do them really well or poorly or in the middle or whatever, but like that, you, it was almost all about innate skill. And I had always been procrastinating, but often was doing really well in school. And so actually I always was really. And, and then like in art, I was just like, well, I have no innate skill, I'm not good. But by the end of this class, I was like, well, I thought I had zero innate skill and I basically did, but by the sheer will and time and effort, I actually made something I was really proud of and it opened up this, this thing in the world of just like, how do you find a way to look at anything as a skill to be tackled? And I feel like everything I've done at Wistia has been driven by this. And how I look at the world today, if I want to do something new, is basically like, how do I get through those first crits? Like, how do I find my, my path at the beginning? And if I'm really passionate about it, and you can find the way, right way to do that and you get the right inputs, you, it's amazing what you can accomplish. So yeah, that's probably like the most embarrassed I've ever been, but then it, it honestly changed my life like going forward. One, I've known you a long time, never heard that story. So that was really cool. To hear. <laughs> uh, two, that's insane. 
Like, I think that a lot of people like, so we, you know, we have people who went through art school at ProfitWell and I don't think people realize the, probably the most emotionally sensitive, not in a bad way, but, but like art people who go through art school, like hardcore, and it wasn't necessarily like your, your core, they've get obliterated in school. Yes. Typically. Like yeah. with critiques and I'm sure for some, it makes it so much worse and others, you know, like you rises to the occasion, but it's, it's intense. Just those critiques. In- incredibly intense. It's also why it's often funny because I think people who are not used to giving feedback on design and art and creative, if you come into a scenario where there's a creative and they want your feedback, actually they crave the honest feedback. If you knew, if you could see what they all went through the crits, you would let it fly and then the work would get better. But everyone's kind of afraid to give feedback often because it feels like, how can I, how am I supposed to be one to judge this type of thing? And um, yeah, I don't know. I found it interesting and a good lesson in general of like, give feedback early and often, and then people are much more apt to take it, but you'd be shocked by, it's not private feedback when you're in art school. Like it is, it's public and everyone can see your success and everyone can see your failure. So it's, it really does make a huge difference. That's wild, man. So why video? It's one of those things where it's obvious now that video is so powerful, but you know, 14 years ago, video probably wasn't as big of a thing. So, so why were you into video? I was into video fundamentally just around because of the storytelling. Like I was driven to tell stories and believed that my favorite medium was video and that it would be nothing better than to be able to create stories. Like that is what got me into video in the first place. And then online video was happening at this exact moment. Like this like basically enormous jump forward, leap forward in the tech was happening at the exact same moment that I was graduating from college. And so it was seeing the fact that the broadband was coming. There was open source tools to do the encoding for the video. Everyone could encode to flash. Flash was on every device. Like all of this magical stuff was happening. YouTube was like the signal that this was taking off, but there was 10 other competitors that were carbon copies of YouTube in the early days. And so my co-founder Brendan and I looked at that and thought, this is going to get really big. And this is going to change how online video works. Like it's really a a new market. So we don't know what we're doing, but none of the other people in this market should really know. And we think this is going to be a major change. Like let's jump in. And then I think we were totally right that that was going to happen and utterly wrong on the timing. It took us a year to focus on helping businesses. And that's where Wistia really was born. And we've been, you know, fundamentally focused on those exact same customers since then. But what happened was the consumer side exploded with user-generated content, crappy looking stuff, pirated content, all these things, and the business side lagged behind. And so we were we were really, really early on that space. And then once that space took off, we were we were there. And Ted kind of like honed the product and kept it simple and all that kind of stuff. And we're able to ride as the as a market group. No, it's interesting. And from, you know, a video perspective, I'm going to kind of goad you to tell one of my favorite stories. Let's talk about Buddy a little bit. Because <laughs> um, you actually, you know, you were you were on the filmmaking path and it's probably in yes. the future still at some point. But what were some of the stories from the trenches of actual filmmaking? Yeah, so Buddy was a feature-length documentary about this fellow named Buddy Cianci, who was the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. And he, at the time, 
um, was the longest serving mayor in the U.S., but he had a nice 10-year break in the middle where he was not mayor. And that break was started in 1980. He assaulted his ex-wife's lover, who happened to be his best friend, with a fire log and put a cigarette out in his face, then <laughs> was kicked out of office. And 10 years later, after his probationary period was over, he was able to run for mayor again, and he ran and he won. And then he revitalized the city, some would say. Uh, and But he also was very much not a mob boss, but like acted like a mob boss. Like, you know, people were doing payoffs for to reduce their taxes and get government contracts, like all this kind of stuff. And so the documentary was following him for about six months before he went to jail when he didn't think he was going to jail. And uh, yeah, that was, for me, is the first big project I ever worked on. I was probably 19 or 20. I was probably three months after this art class that I started working on it. And I was just a summer intern at the beginning. So I was logging and transcribing tapes. So we'd shoot on mini TV and we'd copy everything to VHS. I'd get to keep the quality as high as possible. I would go to the VHS and I'd type up all the stuff. And then I started giving, bringing notes to the filmmaker on things I thought should be, you know, changed and different in the movie. And I basically wouldn't go away. And I got more things that helped shoot interviews and then ended up being one of the associate producers of the project, which was super exciting and quite shocking, actually. When I graduated and the movie came out soon after, I was able to have credits on a film that won, you know, a bunch of film, different film festivals and won an Emmy and like all this. It was absolutely insane. It was amazing. And also surprising. I mean, it was a tiny, tiny, tiny team. Like the core team of that movie was like three people. So it's just really interesting to see something so up close and see what a small team could accomplish. Like, there's just no question of three people. Can they make a thing that thousands and thousands of people watch and get wins a bunch of stuff? Yeah, they can do it. So it was very cool imprinting at that point in my career and life. And also made it clear to me that at that moment, I that's not the path I want to go down anymore. Mm. We ran into challenges with distribution for that project where even though it won festivals and gotten the top distributors, the general feeling was like there had been too many documentaries about politicians, so they didn't want another one. Mm. And so it was written off. And I remember the feeling of like the day when I heard that the distributor we were talking to had decided not to do it. And I felt bad, but for the filmmaker I was working with, who had spent a huge amount of her life and her savings and stuff on this, I was like, this is devastating. And it sucked to be in an industry where like one person could make that decision. Cause like literally someone else could have just said, well, yeah, we did the last one about politicians, but this one, it's not really about politicians. It's a story of like dual personalities and is it okay if you do bad while doing good? You know, it was like this kind of like more higher level thing. You'd, yeah, you'd think that that would break through and it, and it didn't. And I, that was actually one of the moments I was like, do I really want to be only in a hit space business? Like, I, I don't know. And so it, when the opportunity to start Wistia came up and I started to think about all of the options there, I was like, well, at least in this case, small team, but like we can be in control of our own destiny. Like no one can just tell us one day, no, we're not gonna do distribution. Like that will not exist in this world. And it was an exciting, it was an exciting way to pull everything I was excited about together. And I think that, you know, the evolution of Wistia used to kind of help filmmakers basically, you know, securely send data back or, or video back and forth, then kind of went into the marketing world. Now you're kind of heading into, 
I don't know if there's a distinction between marketing and content, but you know, wider under the marketing world, let's say, into this world of brand affinity, which I don't know if I'm educated enough to know if you guys made that up or if it was something already existing. But like, tell us, tell us about brand affinity and and why this is important for brands. Yeah. So brand affinity is basically a trend that we saw happening. And so we didn't make up the trend, the trend exists. We just tried to name it so it's easier to understand. Um, And it's this idea of people, instead of spending money to build their brand through ads, they're instead building their brand through content. And so it's almost like instead of interruption, they're going to to earned uh, brand building. And think of it as instead of rented brand building, going to owned, like all these different things. And so it's a trend that's been happening and the only way though to really build brand through content is to have content that is longer form and richer that people can spend more time with. And so it ends up looking like tactically lots of companies that are making podcasts, video shows, documentaries, basically acting as if they are a media company themselves or building a media organization within their organization. And you know, you look around Obviously, ProfitWell is doing this. Tons of companies are doing this. But what we noticed was just that it all was kind of happening organically. Everyone had shifted from just making content for search to making content for a different reason. And that other reason, we, after talking to a lot of people and talking to a lot of folks about how this is working, was really around getting people to spend time with the brand and understand the brand values. And if you do those things really well, you spend a bunch of time and understand the brand values, it changes buying behavior, right? It changes retention. It changes when it just, I mean, it's so blindingly obvious when you think about it, it's like, well, if someone's a brand advocate, are they going to be excited when your new products come out? Are they going to defend you? Are they going to stick with you? Of course they are. It's that idea of instead of making those brand advocates just on the marketing side, just through ads, doing it through content. What do you think was the shift of people organically doing this? You're talking kind of like the results of the time, but what what forced the hand of people, you think? I think it's a bunch of different things. I think it's the early web, there was just less competition. It was easier to stand out or to be the only thing in your category. And to be clear, if there's a product category and you're the only product, like this stuff can help you, but it's not like as nearly as necessary. Like it is much more like get the brand awareness for what your product is and you're going to take off, Right. But it's, you know, if we think about worlds, I don't know, I'm thinking about like, for some reason, getting mattresses to delivered, right? Like Tuft and Needle and Casper were first. And it was more just about like, whose name do you know? Like, just like, just know a name. And if everyone knows Casper, they start buying Casper like crazy. And it, like, and it makes a big difference. But as there's now there's so many players in the space, advertising alone is not enough for that business. Like the brand is so incredibly important. Like, how do you know the difference between a night's sleep on any of these different things. Incredibly hard to know. So you have to feel like you're making the right decision. You have to believe that the values of the company that you're engaging with are like the right values. And I think that that, as there's become more competition, as the advertising is not enough, they have to find another way to build that brand connection. And I think that this has just been happening over and over in, in lots of categories. And I think also like it's this actually the same trend of the production trend and the data trend, like it's gotten, everyone can make such incredible content and they can do it cheaply and with cameras that you can order on Amazon that show tomorrow that you look at the world differently when you can do that, right? It's like, we saw this shift happen when video producers started getting hired at companies. This is a similar shift. You know, before that, if you make a product launch video, company over video, great. You go hire an agency once, they make a video for you for, let's pick a number, 10 grand. 
Got great, got the thing, looks good. Show it to the world. Once you bring someone on your team, yes, they're still going to help you make those product launch videos and stuff, but suddenly they start seeing all these other places where you can interject human beings, where you can interject emotional connection. And that changed dramatically all the content we saw people making. And it was all these different spots, you know, it's like, you know, confirmation pages and unsubscribe pages and all, all these different things with like targeted content. And it's because the production was there and available and possible to do. And so I feel like the, the brand affinity stuff and making this long form content is kind of similar. It's like, well, yeah, I can keep making you ads, but I also can like with the same equipment tomorrow, when we don't have another concept for that, I can try making content. And that's, as that's happening and more people see it working, then it becomes even easier to invest and believe that it'll pay off. Yeah. It's interesting because you've also seen like some brands like MailChimp, you know, I think I can't remember $20 million, something like that. I think they hired like Shonda Rhimes or some crazy mm -hmm. showrunners to basically do things. Mm -hmm. And then you had, I think Shopify is investing more in this. You got bootstrap companies like us. Like, do you have an opinion? I, I have a sneaking suspicion that when you go spend $20 million on something that's brand new, it's, yeah. you're going to throw a lot of money at something and you might produce something fantastic as some of the MailChimp shows are, but then all of a sudden what will end up happening is maybe the the connection isn't really going to exist because they just ended up buying a lot of content. Like, what do you think of that? Like, is this a start small thing? Is this a, you know, and it's all relative, right? Like small for MailChimp it's, might yeah. be $2 million, but how, how do you think about going all in, building up from bottom, like, or anything in between? Yeah, I think most of us are gonna build up from the bottom. I think that if you don't have a plan yet, I've talked to a lot of folks who are starting their content journey and their audience building with a video podcast because they they know that if they can if they can find a niche that they can own they can talk to and they can get people coming back that's going to be really really good for their business and again like it's as simple as what you and i are doing right now we're chatting on zoom we both have microphones it's basically all you need to like get going and it's becoming more common because it's like how i think we're all understanding that we're interacting with brands differently like you're willing to subscribe in your Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as an example, you're willing to subscribe to something from Wistia and something from ProfitWell and also some of your friend's stuff and also a Conan O'Brien thing. And, you know, the list goes, it's a smattering of stuff that represents the different things you're interested in. And some of them are work-related and some of them are not, but they're in the same app. They're in the same area. And as we see that in our own behavior, I think it changes how we're willing to invest. And so that ends up being a lot of small businesses and startups. MailChimp, I think is interesting because they are spending a lot of money on their content, but they were spending a ton of money on their ads before too. And they have seen in many cases, you know, the, the production quality of their ads was so high and the buys were so expensive, the media buys, that in many cases they can make a season of a podcast with a well-known host for less than it costs them in the other world. Mm. So it's, it's, it's actually been cheaper in a lot of places. And I, I get, I do get asked about the MailChimp example a lot because their content is so out there and so different. You know, they have that documentary. It's called Hands on a Hard Body. Have you seen that? I've not, but I, I know what you're referring. I know the. It's uh, everyone the who's point you're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like everyone's supposed to be standing around a car, and whoever keeps the their it's a documentary of people standing with their hand on the car, and the last person standing wins the car. And how does that have anything to do with MailChimp? Like it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with it. But the values are about like going out on your own and being entrepreneurial and taking a risk and being quirky and weird and fun and different. And actually that's what MailChimp's ads were always like. That was the values they're trying to get across their ads. And in the past, you know, 
they were willing to advertise on things as far removed from their business as stuff like cereal. So I, I always think it's like, we need to think about where would we be willing to advertise? Like what audience do we think might have an overlap with ours? And often they're much farther afield than we admit, and they, but the ads in many cases can work. Sometimes they don't work, but they can work. So if you can bring it closer in, something like hands on a hard body actually can be a really good mix of audience, even better than some of these external places. So yeah, I think MailChimp, for them to even see it work, they got to go big and they get the meta advantage of like doing all of this. But I, I think it really is for most folks, they're going to start internally and they're going to figure it there's someone's going to start being scrappy with it and then scale it up. And then I think if you're really big, that scaling it up is just more expensive and looks, you know, more polished. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, polish isn't everything, but it's all relative, right? Like you probably have to be polished for the size or the target that you're going after, which is kind of interesting. When you think about this movement here, I've always struggled with, and, and we're still struggling with this on some level, the distribution pieces, which I know mm -hmm. is, is kind of what Wistia wants to help solve as well. Because now we went from a lot of blog posts and a lot of, you know, eBooks, right. In the market, we have additional channels now with podcasts um, and, and obviously different mediums, but they're also in different channels. And those are probably going to get saturated at some point as well, because everyone's got a show. Some are better than others. Don't get me wrong. But like, how do you think about not only standing out, but just distribution or does that even matter? Yeah, it matters. I, I think that the key is, knowing your target customer really well and being willing to go deeper and be more specific than the competition. And I think, you know, we live in a world where everything is interconnected, whatever your interest is, you can find the subreddit, right? And there's, guess what? There's not 10 other people, there's a hundred thousand because that's what happens when you connect every person. And I'm a believer that our culture at this point is predominantly an internet culture. Like we're just all subsumed by like our interests are all personalized and the niche groups that we're into are all like connecting with each other. And so the way to tap into that is to make stuff that's really, really specific. And I think there's actually a huge amount of potential in many of these channels because so many of them have been hobbies and they haven't been approached through you know, the rigor of really what happens when you treat this stuff like it's an actual product. You know, it's a, it's a very, very big difference to make some content, put it out into the world, and then actually follow up with people and say, what did you think of this? Like, was it good? Did you like it? What didn't you like? What was missing? What else should be in there? And then if you feel like you're connecting and the audience that's consuming it is giving you good feedback, you start to actually market it like it's a product, you know, spend dollars on it like it's a product. Like, atomize it, take the whole thing and then take all the little pieces from it that are useful, spread those around and market those. And I think there's just so much potential when people start doing that. And I've talked to a lot of folks who most, I would say, even those with successful podcasts, they're not actually usually marketing those podcasts anymore. Like it's their fundamental audience is growing, hopefully because it connects and they, they share it with others. But you have to think to yourself, if that was part of an organization that really their whole thing was building audiences, how much bigger could that audience be? How much faster could it grow? How much tighter could the connections be to their overall brand or network? And I think that that's where there's just today enormous opportunity. You know, the, the playbook is being used by the media companies we know, but very, very, very few companies are actually marketing content in that way. 
Yeah. So what does that tactically look like? Like if we kind of go down, you know, some Yeah, tactically, I think it looks like if you have a show that has episodes like this, going through each episode, trying to find what you think the most interesting moments of the episode are. Releasing the episode, pick the order you want to do this stuff. Release it, release the clips, release the trailer of the episode. Put the episode out there and then see which parts people find most interesting and cut those moments out and spread those around. I know you and I are aligned on this, but like it's so important in this world to have owned audiences, like to have a direct connection to the people who care about your content, because if they care about your content, they're gonna be much more likely to care about your products, right? Like it's gonna be easier to build that brand connection. And so how do you drive interest and engagement on all the different platforms? They can change their rules all the time. That's great. Like we all have to pivot to how the rules are changing, but try to drive, drive engagement. And for the people who are the most engaged and excited, the next step of the, the funnel for their content journey is going to be going back and watching the whole thing. So if you have a 30 second clip of somebody saying something really insightful or interesting, people want more. It's like, tell them where to get more, bring them back, bring that connection, use the content basically as, yeah, as tendrils out into the world that will bring people in. And if you, if you really do that rigorously for every you know, episode you're releasing, you end up with just so, I mean, so many nets out there, so much stuff out there for people to consume and engage with. And yes, it's going to be less than uh, what's like uh, the Ninja Warrior show. Like that thing's ridiculous. It's like, there's, there's stuff everywhere. You're never going to get as much out there as them. But if it makes into the right parts of the web where folks are hanging out, they're talking about, in your case, they're talking about business models and scaling their business. And everyone's constantly referencing profit. Well, guess what? A bunch of people are going to come back. They're going to find you. And I and you and I both know that this actually works for you. So it's, yeah. it's I think it's more how do other people get confident and comfortable taking this approach? There's a lot here. I mean, I think that's part of the challenge is actually once you start doing this, there's like, that, there's so much opportunity, it becomes hard to focus. Yeah, honestly, that's what we struggle with, which is just like with the new stuff we're releasing this quarter, we now have what I feel is the mechanics down. You know, we now, oh, this show that we did or this version of this show was a little too, wasn't quite quality, but it also wasn't quite optimized for spread and speed. You know, let's, let's, you know, make some clear decisions on those sides of the spectrum. But now it's, we could produce six shows, like, you know, two really good ones and four that are, you know, optimized for speed. Like, what do we do? How do we atomize them? And I think that you get caught up in, in like a subscriber count right? You know, it's like Instagram followers or YouTube subscribers or Twitter followers. You get caught up in that. And I always just keep coming back to, you know, the, the, the thousand fervent fans, you know, that post that was written of like, you know, if you got a thousand of the right people, especially if you're a niche, like supply chain software, that's pretty powerful. It's just hard to reconcile that. It's funny. You said, I was talking to an entrepreneur who started a podcast like two months ago and he said he's getting like 300 downloads an episode. I think it's weekly. And I'm like, what do you think of that? He's like, are you kidding me? This is amazing. It's like I have 300, 300 people watching a webinar every time I release the thing. That seems like that would be the best webinar I've ever had. That's crazy. If you compare yourself to a giant media organization, the thousands going to suck. If you compare it to the average B2B webinar, that's out of control. You know, every time, that's crazy. And I think we just forget the markets that we're in and get distracted by the fact that yeah, if we're making a video show or making a podcast, the other people who do look like this are making you know, giant shows, but we're not a giant show. So figure out where we're at and then recognize that, you know, you get 30, the right business, 30 customers can be 
absolutely game-changing, enormous year. Or Palantir, apparently. If you have 30, they have 30. <laughs> I, can't remember, I can't remember how many customers have, but it's something like that. Yeah, yeah. High ACV, that's what helps that. Yeah. I, it's funny, I was just talking to our mutual friend, Jay, Jay Kunzo. Jay's a purist, I feel, with content. Like, he just, he just wants to create content, and if it, <laughs> yeah. it gets distributed, he doesn't really care. But I asked him, you know, I was like, oh, this one of his shows, I was like, oh, what's what's like the downloads? And he, he gave me a number that I was kind of like, really? Like it wasn't it wasn't a large number, but he's like, yeah, this has been the most profitable show that I've had. Like all mm-hmm. of these people, like when I who signs up for my courses, who's who buys these things, who's, you know, helping me produce more shows, it's everyone who's listening to this one, even though the the subscriber count might not be huge. So I don't know. It's 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 a weird world that is going to evolve even further. Well, it's also, I mean, it's funny as you're saying that because of course the difference is just in how these folks are monetized, right? Like yeah. how the, if you want to talk about audience monetization, well, if you have a thousand or a million subscribers on YouTube and it depends on what your topic is, but like you could be making 40K a month. That'd be amazing, right? Like, you know, close yeah. half a million a year or whatever. And then, but you need a million subscribers. And then over here, little B2B, and you have a thousand people and you could be adding Cash half a million a month. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. And I think it's just like how the, it's like, you, you've said this, this is exactly what you've said. The yeah. subscription economy is incredibly good at monetizing and bad at building audiences and media is great at building audiences. And it's just putting those things together. Yeah, I, I said that an hour ago on another call. I must be a broken yeah. record there. No, it's, it's, it's wild. I think brand affinity is, is here to stay. A question I have for you, though, and you kind of show selection, like, how do you think about this? Because like a lot of your early content that wasn't necessarily show based, but it was still video based. It was instructional, like the hundred dollar lighting kit, like stuff like that. You now have done like a big brand affinity talk show where you have wild animals that come and scare you and similar to a late night show. <laughs> uh, someone's going to have to look that up to get the reference. I mean, it's not my favorite thing you've done, but it's one of my favorites, which is the the slack conversation about a bird being in i think chris levine's like house or something like that yeah how do you how are you picking hey there's this super specific show built for uh marketers at this size company and this versus hey this is going to get a lot of people who aren't the marketer but we can still get in front of them and kind of teach them the concept kind of like ten thousand one hundred i can't one one ten one hundred yeah one ten one hundred there we go yeah yeah so it's funny. The bird thing, that was completely organic. That just happened. And then to delight the team, like Chris and Adam hired someone to be a voiceover actor and make this video, which then would release the world. And then, you know, everyone can, can get in on it. But for almost all the, ma- I'll just say the major content we're making, we basically have created an internal mandate, a document that is very similar to a studio document that says like, this is what the mission of our content is. You know, there's a, a few different pillars that it's tried. We want all the content to, to always um, have within it. And for us, it's like businesses excel when brands make real connections, creativity is differentiator and build your business your way. Those are like the three kind of like content pillars and there's more specifics across those things. Then we have a bunch of different target audiences and I think it's like five. And there, some of them are really specific. Some of them are closer into our products and some are farther away, but more like influencer types. And so when we're making the content, it's not all going to, it's going to be different by audience. And so we try to say like, all right, what fits the mandate for 
those in-house video producers? What fits the mandate for, you know, these influencer type leaders? And we go through and we have lots of discussions and then there's a lot of pre-production that gets done. And the pre-production also includes like, where do we think people are going to watch this or listen to this or read this? Like where, where, where will these people be hanging out? And then when we green light the show, we're green lighting the, sh the show or content to actually be produced, but then also we're going to start working on how we'll be building audiences and, and marketing that content as well. And so it can look from the outside, if you're seeing all of it, like, well, this looks like these are different people. And it is, but if you look at each individual thread, you're like, oh, this makes sense that, you know, whatever. The bird thing actually would play well for the in-house video producer or, they, or the creatives because they would see that and be like, this is ridiculous that they made this and it's inspiring me to do something differently. And so that's even an example of something that happened organically that still fits within, you know, who we think a, a good audience is. So the basic idea is you have some foundational principles about what content should look like. You then have five audiences and then is the goal to have a show or more for each of those audiences or is it more hey we can do two shows let's pick two of these audiences kind of a thing yeah i mean if we did if we could only do two we'd pick two and we'd try to prioritize what we think is most important at the moment and sometimes you know the content works for multiple audiences and that's also amazing that's fantastic when that works but yeah the the goal is that the mission of the content is the same and we actually wrote it and created this mandate in a way that we can work with external production so it's not just us and we're just we're right now starting to to green like content it's going to be the first stuff that we haven't made and it, it's exciting there's different degrees of it some we're like co-creating with others and others where they have the first people who are going to be making stuff for wistia that is within the mandate that we are like signing off on what we think that content should be, but it's really them coming back to us as if, I mean, on the one hand, as if they're on the team and had an idea, but with more freedom in the production. And so it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. I mean, that's the stuff that we haven't really done that much of that I would, you know, internally I would say people are the most nervous about. And it's also very exciting because it's like, if we can figure that out, then we can scale up faster. We can do more faster if we want to, or do bigger things. But a lot of our brand has been built around like you're showing people who are at Wistia in the content. You are, yeah. you feel like you know people at Wistia. So how will we do that? I don't know. It's a, it's going to be an interesting challenge for us, but I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. So Wistia is coming out with Game of Thrones, new <laughs> spinoff season. That's what I'm hearing. I won't say Game of Thrones, but there's some things being thrown around, none with epic battles, sadly, but there's some things being thrown around that I am shocked that we're considering. And uh, I hope we do them because they're scary, actually. And that's, at least for me, that's like, that motivates me a lot when I'm, when I'm afraid of what we're going to do. I'm like, oh, this better work. Then I feel like it makes me, me work harder on it, everyone on it, work harder on it and just like, you know, push to a level that we don't always get to, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, we have to end now so that I can stop recording and you can tell me what they are because you can okay. reveal them to everyone. But yeah. no, uh, where can people find you if they want to get more from you? They can find me on Twitter at C Savage. I'm also on LinkedIn, but I'm overwhelmed with messages there. So oh, don't do that much. It's terrible. It's, it's a mess. And if you can find my email, you're welcome to email me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks to Chris Savage for lending his time to our show. Today, we talked about how shame led to work ethic, when to give up on your dreams, the shift from marketing to brand affinity, the unlock to content distribution, and Wistia's internal content mandate. 
Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would appreciate if you left a five-star review on this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. <laughs>